I could think of last week's sermon my preacher worked so hard on. It was a work of art. I'd remember Jonah's preaching all the people he was reaching if I only had a heart. I'd forget about inflation, COVID vaccinations, shopping at Walmart. I could still count my blessings just by listening to Steve's lesson, if I only had a heart. What Jonah has to teach us is God can only reach us if we all do our part. I could tell the old, old story, then go home to him in glory, if I only had a heart. Thank you, but I know sympathy applause when I hear it. I appreciate that. Sad part. Some of you will be, that'll get in your head for the rest of the day, that tune. If you're new to us, we've been in a sermon series on the book of Jonah. The overarching theme is missions. There are four chapters, four sermons, and today we're in the fourth chapter in the fourth sermon. So in the first message, we were talking about Jonah's call to mission and our call to mission. In the second chapter, it's about the preparation for missions. And last week, we saw the results of missions in chapter three. Jonah preached his eight-word sermon there, and 120,000 people repented in the city city of Nineveh, and God relented and did not bring judgment upon them. So God changed that particular plan. And then today, as we finish up with the fourth chapter, I want to talk about the heart of missions, the heart. I only had a heart, and the heart of missions is the heart of God. So what we're going to do, we're going to use this chapter just to illustrate, we're going to say three things about God's missionary heart. And the first one is, it's a big heart. God's missionary heart is big. Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. This change of plans, the change of plans, is God's change of plans to destroy Nineveh. He changed that plan. Greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? This is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that, now here comes the description of God's heart. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. So we see this beautiful picture of God's heart, all the more striking because it's contrasted to Jonah's heart. He's got a bit of a hard heart right here. You'd think this would be a big victory for Jonah. He's preaching, 120,000 converts. I would get out the cooler of Gatorade and dump it on his head. This is a big victory moment. If that had happened today, you had a preacher like that, I mean, he'd be on the conference circuit at all the church growth conferences. Mel Gibson would want to play Jonah in a movie. But Jonah is not happy because he's got a hard heart toward the Assyrians. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, and they were bad people, and they had terrorized the Israelites. This is why he had something against them to begin with. But not so God. God has this beautiful, merciful, compassionate heart, slow to get angry, filled with unfailing love, eager to turn back from destroying people. Sometimes we have questions for God when it comes to uh, judgment and salvation. God, 
How could a loving God send people to hell? This is, this is a problem for some atheists, right? It's judgment and hell. I can't believe a loving God would send people to hell. Although, ironically, it's atheistic governments that have been responsible for tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions, of massacres and deaths. And I just want to point out, this is a contrast here between a human sense of compassion and mercy and the divine sense of compassion and mercy. And we see this with God and we see it with Jonah, but really, ever since the beginning of the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve, they sinned, they messed up, rebelled against God, ever since that time, God has been on a mission to save people. Now, we ask these questions. All right, how can a loving God send people to hell? How come, you know, how is it fair that I'm born in America and you got a church on every corner and I had the opportunity to hear the gospel so I can respond and go to heaven? But what about the person in Timbuktu where there is no church and they never hear the gospel? Is God going to send them to hell? Is that fair? And we have those questions. They're legitimate questions. But we would tend to talk about these questions maybe in a Sunday school class. They're hypothetical, they're theoretical, they're theological. We might talk about them for an hour or so, then we go to lunch, we go home, we take a nap, we get up tomorrow, we go to work, and we forget all about them. But with God, those questions are not hypothetical, they're not theoretical, they're not just theological. God cares about those kinds of questions. Who's going to be saved? Whether they can be saved? How can they be saved? He cares about that more than anybody does. More than you, more than me. It's like an obsession with God is salvation. It's the story arc of the Bible. It's what every book of the Bible is about. And the overarching story is God's mission, His driving obsession to save as many people as possible. It's a good thing. It's just a good thing that God with His great big heart is in charge of salvation and judgment. And not somebody like us, not somebody like Jonah. Remember in the Gospels, and Jesus is traveling with his disciples, and they, they try to stay somewhere at some local village as they're traveling along. They come to a Samaritan village, and they send a message in there. Jesus is out here. Can he, can he stay somewhere? And the, the Samaritans send the message back, no. Hit the road, Jack, and don't you come back. And two of the disciples, James and John, turn to Jesus and say, hey, Shall we call down fire on this village and just destroy them right now? That's, that's a human concept. That's what we are like. And Jesus said, what am I going to do with you sons of thunder? No, we're not going to nuke this village. We're just going to move along. But we sometimes think, you know, hey, if I was in charge of judgment and salvation, nobody would go to hell. Oh, no, because we're so gracious and merciful. Not, if we were really in charge... If we, a human being, any human being, was in charge, nobody would stand a chance. Did you see in the, have you seen in the news the last week or two about these, these lootings that are going on in San Francisco and other places? Yeah, 80 cars will drive up to a Best Buy or a Nordstrom's and they, they go in there and they smash and grab, maybe hurt a few people, 15 or 20 minutes. They grab all this stuff and then they flee and they're not, they can't catch them. I was reading about that online, and you know how when a story is posted online, you can have little comments, reader comments below. I was reading the reader comments. Somebody commented, I hate people, right? 
Now, they probably don't hate people or hate all people, but it's just saying, you see that kind of lawlessness and injustice, it's irritating to us. It irritates us. I was in line at Home Depot the other day, check register, and four people, it was this long line, and there's four people up. The people at the register are debating the, the merits of getting a, a Home Depot credit card. Now, we're all waiting. Can't you... T- Talk about that at home. It's irritating. But God wants to save that couple at the counter. God even wants to save those looters who are looting the stores. God wants to save people like the Assyrians. God wants to save robbers and liars and murderers and even terrorists. People who in our honest to Jonah moments, we would just assume they got what's coming to them. Right? That's us. But we're not God, and it's a good, good thing. When we wonder about those people in Timbuktu, when we wonder about our dear relative who passed away, who maybe didn't check all the boxes and do everything just right, when we wonder about some of our children or our brothers and sisters or even our parents today who seem to be far from God and maybe they just have a little sliver of faith left, and we wonder, would they, are they going to make it? Are they going to be okay? It's a good thing. Those kinds of questions are in the hands of God. That's the best chance that anybody has. For God so loved the world, He sent His one and only Son to die for us, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What's driving the engine of the missionary train of salvation? It's the great big heart of God. So we definitely see this illustrated in the... uh, this fourth chapter of Jonah. Okay, we're going to say three things today about God's heart. Number one, it's a big heart. Number two, it's a wise heart. God's missionary heart is wise. And I mean this primarily in the, the area of priorities. Now, here's a kind of a long passage. If you want to hang with me, it'll be on the screen as I read through this. Verses 4 through 11. So then Jonah went out to the east side of the city, made a shelter to sit under as he waited to see what would happen to the city. The Lord arranged for a leafy plant to grow there, and soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun. This eased his discomfort, and Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But God also arranged for a worm. God is into arranging some odd things here. And the next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant so that it withered away. And as the sun grew hot, God arranged for a scorching wind to blow on Jonah. The sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and he wished to die. Death is certainly better than living like this, he exclaimed. And then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Yes, even angry enough to die. And then the Lord said, well, you you feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there, and it came quickly and died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? So Jonah's a bit of a passive-aggressive, right? He's a, he's a bit of a, a hothouse flower, very delicate. He's upset about this plant and the shade and, and all of that. He's what I call a man-child. You know, have you ever known a man-child? Raise your hand if you've known a man-child. Point to him right now. No, I'm just kidding. Don't point to the man-child in church today. But uh, he's a little bit like that. So he's whining and he's complaining to God. And, of course, God used this plant to 
to point this out, that Jonah has a big blind spot right here. I'm going to, I infer from this that Jonah was, you know, a little photically challenged up here, and he needed that nice leafy plant, was giving him some shade. I understand that. I have to wear a hat everywhere I go to protect my head in the sun. So I get that. But God says to Jonah, basically, you got your priorities are all out of whack. You care about this plant. Shouldn't I care about the city? 120,000 people? And animals. So God cares about everything. God loves, God loves everyone. God loves everything. God loves plants too. We know that. God created plants. You read the Gospels. Jesus is talking about the lilies of the field and how God dresses them up. And the lilies are so beautiful. God loves plants. But God doesn't love everything the same. And he loves animals more than he loves plants. He even mentions the animals. Did you pick up on that? The animals in Nineveh? Shouldn't I care about them too? He cares about animals more than plants because animals are sentient beings. So he loves animals. But he loves people more than he loves animals. He loves animals more than plants. He loves people more than animals. Because people are, human beings are created in the image of God and the animals are not. It's just a hierarchy of priorities. And so we want to make sure that we get our priorities right and we can laugh at Jonah. Or here's, here's a story for you. In September of 1990, Katerina Clement willed, she left in her will, $500,000 to a house plant. The jade plant was described as having been the 79-year-old woman's best and only friend for the last five years of her life. She stipulated that it remain, the plant remain on a satin draped pedestal until it died as well. The legal papers also called for Patrice Mattel to receive $48,000 per year to care for the plant. She must do three things. Water and fertilize it, make sure it comes to no harm. And number three, play the song Edelweiss to it with her clarinet every day. Now that's in World Weekly News, so it must be true. And it's also on the internet, so it must be true. But nevertheless, that's a little silly, isn't it? Can we not see her priorities maybe out of whack to leave a half a million dollars to a plant? Jonah's priorities, a little bit out of whack. He cares so much about a plant that was not here yesterday, it's here today, and then it's gone tomorrow. They have huge blind spots. Hey, sometimes we have blind spots. You know, sometimes the things that we care about are things we should not be putting so much time, energy, effort, money, treasure, investing that into. Um, you know, life is busy, and I understand that. We have to work a job, and we have to make money, and we have a family to take care of, and we have to provide you know, an exercise and do all that kind of things. But it's amazing how busy and cluttered our lives can become to the point of distraction. I'm reading a little book here right now called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by... John Mark Comer, I just want to read you a quote out of this. And this is about distractions. Today, a number of historical circumstances are blindly flowing together and accidentally conspiring to produce a climate within which it is difficult not just to think about God or to pray, but simply to have any interior depth whatsoever. We, for every kind of reason, good and bad, are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. It is not that we have anything against God or the Spirit. We like these. It's just that we are habitually too preoccupied to have any of these show up on our radar screens. We are more busy than bad, more distracted than non-spiritual, 
and more interested in the movie theater, the sports stadium, the shopping mall, and the fantasy life they produce in us than we are in church. Pathological busyness, distraction, and restlessness are major blocks today within our spiritual lives. We are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. For many of us, the great danger is not that we will renounce our faith, it is that we will become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that we will settle for a mediocre version of it. We will just skim our lives instead of actually living them. And Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. All the other things will be added to you. Seeking first the kingdom of God is about seeking first the priorities of God. Love people. You know, love God, love people, serve others. People's number two. That's the wisdom. God's got a wise heart. And a third thing we want to say today about God's heart, God's missionary heart, is persuasive. Is persuasive. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. Again, verse 9. But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Now, I was thinking about this and thinking about it and thinking about it. And I'm thinking, why is, Jonah, is God even bothering with Jonah at this point? What difference does it make? Because God has already accomplished what he wanted to accomplish. When Nineveh repented, that's mission accomplished right there. He wanted to save all those people saved. He wanted Jonah to go and preach to them. Jonah did that. He did what God asked him to do. Why doesn't this story just end in chapter 3? Why is chapter 4 even in the Bible? What's the point? What's interesting here is we see this ability of God to, to zoom out and zoom in. Zoom out. He's got the big picture by virtue of his omniscience. He sees everything that's going on. The big picture is the 120,000 people in Nineveh. They are saved. That was a, that was a big goal. Zoom out, and, but then zoom back in on this recalcitrant prophet with a hard heart. That's all done. He, God circles back around to Jonah. For some reason, it is important to Jonah what this or important to God, rather, the divine creator, God of the universe, sustainer, provider, redeemer. It's important to God what this mere mortal man, Jonah, is thinking. Is thinking about what God did. God's actually justifying his actions to Jonah. Why would he do that? Who cares what Jonah thinks? Who cares if Jonah approves of what God did or does not approve? Apparently, God cares. So in this book of Jonah and in this story, we see God's desire for the salvation of Nineveh, but the sanctification of Jonah. So sanctification, big theological word, is the progressive process of becoming holy. And be, holy means becoming more and more like God. We're all in that process. This gradual progressive process of growing spiritually and becoming like God. God is concerned with that process. and he, We're all saved, or most of us are saved in here. We still have a process to go through. And that is to mature 
Become more and more like Christ and more and more like God. This is, the, this is what chapter 4 is all about. God wants to have a heart-to-heart conversation with Jonah because it's not enough that Jonah obeyed and did what God told him to do. God doesn't just want AI, artificial intelligence. God doesn't want just automatons that will do what God makes them do. He made Jonah do what he was supposed to do. He wants Jonah to understand. He wants him to understand God's heart, the why of it. In fact, he wants Jonah to have his heart, to feel what he feels, to feel that love, that concern, that compassion behind the mission. Similar statement in the New Testament in Philemon Paul, the apostle, is writing to Philemon to get him to do what he ought to do. And he puts it this way in Philemon 1.8. He said, I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. Paul was the man. He was the apostle. He had the power. Philemon, I can make you do what you ought to do. I'm not going to do that. I want to persuade you. Gentle persuasion. And this is how God treats all of us. He lays it out there. He says, I want you to understand my heart. I want you to do these things. Well, it's what Paul calls in Romans, it's obedience, but he calls it the obedience of faith. This is the goal, obedience of faith and love. That we're obeying God because we trust Him, we understand His heart, and we love Him. Now, I've told this story before. I don't know if it'll ring any bells to you, but Eddie Rickenbacker was a a World War II flying ace. And and at one point, read a biography of his life sometimes. It's fascinating. But he was shot down over the Pacific Ocean during World War II. He had a crew on his B-17 of nine people. So they're on the life rafts, and they survive out there for over a month. Uh, Their rations had run out in the first few days, and so Rickenbacker said that on the eighth day, they, were, they had devotions every morning. They had their devotions. Uh, they prayed. Then Rickenbacker pulled his hat over his eyes and went to sleep. You remember this story? And uh, it was on the eighth day, a seagull, while he was napping in the life raft, a seagull came and landed on his head. And so he woke up. He caught the seagull. They killed it. They ate it. They used its intestines for fish bait, and they caught fish. The whole time they were out there, that's how they survived from not starving to death. All right, so you may remember that story, but here's a side note. I haven't told this part. Uh, Max Lucado was writing about that, and Max Lucado says one of those nine crew members on those life rafts, James Whitaker, was not a believer until that happened. And so Max Lucado writes this. He says, the rest of the world is occupied with Germany and Hitler Every headline is reporting the actions of Roosevelt and Churchill. The globe is locked in battle for freedom. And the father is in the Pacific Ocean sending a missionary pigeon to save one soul. Big picture, little picture. So this was, this was God working on Jonah's heart. But right now, although I'm talking to a group and God is speaking to the group in His own way. God is having a conversation with each one of us as individuals. 
the message is for your heart and my heart. Do you love what I love? And do you hate what I hate? Do you love people? Do you care about the mission? Hey, we all care about the mission. Could we care more and get a little bit closer to what God really cares about and is passionate about? And that is the mission to reach people. What Jonah has to teach us is God can only reach us if we all do our part. I could tell the old, old story and go home to Him in glory if I what? I only had a heart. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we're, we're impressed this morning as we look back at this story and we see how much you care about lost people, but also each one of us and what's going on in our hearts and our thoughts. We pray today that we recommit ourselves to seek first your kingdom, your righteousness, your priorities, your love, and your passion. Lord, we pray that you will help us that because we need, we need your help, grace and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.